This morning we are continuing in our series going through the book of Judges entitled Broken People and Faithful God. If you do have your Bible this morning, you can flip to Judges chapter 11 where we will be beginning. We're going to be covering a little bit of chapters 10, 11, and 12 that are all kind of part of the same story. And as I mentioned earlier, this story really is quite the spiritual kick in the face. Um, it is not for the lighthearted. Um, when we open Toddler Town in a few weeks, obviously our curriculum, we go through various different Bible stories. This particular Bible story will probably not be on the agenda anytime soon at Toddler Town, not because it's not the Word of God, but because it is a difficult passage, particularly for children, um, because it involves, in a sense, children. Um, again, we have a toddler Bible at home that we're starting to use even with uh, Evangeline as she's starting to learn some of these things, and we've used over the years with Benji and Lola. Um, the story of Jephthah did not make it into the Jesus Storybook Bible um, for obvious reasons. But we will continue to see here very clearly those two realities, and those are the realities that we cling to even as we wrestle with some difficult Old Testament passages. That is that we are indeed broken, meaning sinful people in need of help and that God is a faithful God. He is literally the only one who can help us in our situation. Um, I did want to explain why I jumped from last week we were in Judges chapter 3 all the way up to 10, 11, and 12, and that is because of the occasion that our, our nation and our culture finds itself in. Um, it is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. That is something to be celebrated. It is also Sanctity of Life Sunday, um, and both of those are to be celebrated, things to come back to and remember that the scripture speaks to the realities and the truths of why both of those, those holidays or those moments exist. Uh, in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the reality that is ultimately embedded in the scripture is that all people are valuable. All people are important, and that comes directly from God giving them that wonderful gift. So regardless of your skin color or your ethnicity or your heritage, your background, all people are equally created and loved by God. And then really the same thing comes out of the sanctity of life reality. That is, all people are valuable. Human life itself is valuable, whether you're talking about the very old, the very young, or everything in between, and that includes the little babies that are inside mommy's tummies, that they are all incredibly valuable, that God has given them value, that God has given them life. And so because those weeks fall now, Jephthah, the story of Jephthah, approaches those issues, and it really shows us what a culture looks like that has abandoned those biblical realities. Um, the bottom line that we're going to see this morning that I want you to take away is that we ought to trust what God the Father tells us rather than what our culture tells us, particularly when it comes to topics such as these. So let's jump into the Word now. We're going to begin in chapter 11 and verse 29, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 39. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. 
So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is a difficult passage indeed, especially as we get there to the end. Lord, would you give us eyes to see ears to hear, to understand how we might apply the truth of your word, the reality of the gospel and of grace from this passage, Lord. There is actually much to take away, and so I pray, Lord, that you might give us soft hearts that would desire to learn and grow, that we might serve you and glorify you. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation and grace that comes only from him, even in a story such as this. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Five applications this morning as we walk through this passage and kind of what comes around it to fill out the context. Five applications from God's word this morning. The first is this, trust what the Father says about serving sin. Trust what the Father says about serving sin. We get this primarily from going back a chapter to Judges chapter 10 and verse 6, which sets up the bigger picture of what's going on that leads us to this terrible story. Chapter 10 and verse 6 says this, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. There is a theme here of who do you serve or what do you serve? And the reality is, is even in this little verse, if you happen to count, you will see that there are seven false gods that Israel has now chosen to adopt as their own and serve. Seven is not a throwaway number. Throughout Scripture, seven is the number of completion. And what the author of this book, and ultimately the Lord, is telling us here is that Israel has completely destroyed themselves. Israel has completely forgotten God at this point, and their sin makes that clear. So we see that every time Israel worships an idol of a foreign nation, that nation and that idolatry would ultimately destroy Israel. And you may look at these people, this, this historical moment several thousand years ago, and think, man, how dumb are these people? Why are they worshiping these false gods? Why are they literally worshiping little things made of wood and, and little things made of stone? Why would they bow down to little things made of gold and silver? You think, man, I'm glad I'm not there. I'm glad I would never do anything like that. But I think if we're honest, we can probably think of a lot 
of little things made of wood and of stone, little things made of paper, little things made of gold and silver, little things made of plastic and metal that we in a very real way bow down and worship. And we make them our hope and we make them our idols. You know, Jesus says this in in Matthew chapter 26, no one can serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and money, says the scripture. You know, an idol, the word idol is maybe not one that we use all the time in our daily vocabulary. So just so we're clear, an idol is anything that you think that you need in addition to God. The reality is all that we need is the Lord. He provides everything that we need. So when we begin to think and act and live our lives in a way that I must have God plus this thing, we have slipped into the same heart idolatry that Israel here is experiencing. It's a slippery slope. Tim Keller describes it this way. Human hearts have not changed. They still assure us that when an idol leads to slavery, what we need is more of that idol. We see our problem not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. Our sin draws us into deeper sin. And so in this passage, what God does is he allows these false gods to reign over Israel, and they, Israel, worship them and are owned by them, says the scripture, for 18 years in this particular cycle. In the New Testament, though, we see the same thing. We are a New Testament people the devastating effects of serving sin, serving our idols. Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And listen, worshiped and served served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so God the Father here is telling us both in the Old and the New Testament, if you want to serve money and sex and power instead of me, then these will be your masters and they will destroy your life. They will promise a lot. They will deliver very little. They will be enjoyable for a season and they will be awful for an eternity. And so God's people even say in chapter 10 and verse 10, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and worshiping instead the the Baals. Every time your enemies oppressed you, I saved you, says the Lord in response. He goes so far as to say, I will no longer save you in Judges chapter 10. He doesn't mean eternally. He doesn't mean that he's going back on his promises, but he wants them to experience the pain of this sin so that they will leave it. So he says, go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Chapter 10, verse 14. Obviously, they could not. This passage reminds us painfully clearly, first of all, what we've been saying for the last several weeks. Your worst enemy is not another person. It's not another culture. It's not society. Your worst enemy is your sin. But secondly, here too, it makes it clear that your idols cannot save you. Your idols cannot deliver what they promise to deliver. Only the Lord can deliver what he promises. Number two, trust what the Father says 
about who you are. So this is an interesting movement in this passage. We get trust what the Father says about who you are. This is now chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 3, again, before the passage that I opened with. Listen to what it says here. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. What's happening here? The scripture is showing us what's going on in Jephthah's head and heart. Jephthah believed what his culture told him about his identity rather than what God said about his identity. If you do a quick count, you'll see there's actually seven lies that come out of this passage. You are only the son of a prostitute. That's who you are, say these lies. You are illegitimate is the next lie. Your, your parents' sin is a lie. You're a mistake is a lie. You're not part of our family is a lie. You have no inheritance with us, and you're worthless are the lies that Jephthah, to one degree or another, begins to internalize because his culture told him. Behind those lies is Satan, the liar, the accuser, who says to all of God's people, you are simply your sin. You are only your shame or your guilt or your past mistakes. The scripture says the exact opposite. God has a different message Maybe the worst part about this is that it becomes, in a sense, a generational sin because Jephthah, later on in this passage, we see in a very real way, he speaks the same lie to his own daughter and blames her for the situation that they are now in that is based on his own mistakes. And so what he was given as a child, he has now passed on to his child. Let it not be. Here's what the scripture says. Trust what the Father says about who you are. If you're in Christ, then your identity is in Christ, not in your sin, not in your mistakes. If you are in Christ, then you are called a son of God. If you are in Christ, you are called a daughter of God, of the most high God. And I'll be honest with you, in my own life, this is the hardest thing for me to really wrap my head and my heart around. I can tell it to you. I understand it. But when I get pressed, I tend to believe the lies of Satan rather than the truth of the gospel that says, I am a son of God. Even when I make mistakes and even when someone else, even when my culture might speak a word of lying, I have a hard time coming back to. Maybe you've been there as well. There are so many people in our city, the places that we work, in our families, who need to know the personal saving knowledge of the Father, and among other things, need to know that the goodness of being saved is that you are given a brand new identity in Christ. Did you notice there in verse 1 of this, this chapter, God actually calls Jephthah mighty warrior. That's God's assessment. 
God did not level all of other people's sins and mistakes from the past on Jephthah. He says, mighty warrior. Do you know that in Christ, God looks at you and says the same? This is not an isolated reality. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You are not someone else's mistake. You are not the sum of your sins. You are not worthless. You are not alone. Trust what the Father says about your identity. Amen? Number three, trust what the Father says about a relationship with Him. And this is where we start to really unpack what has gone wrong to make this awful story take place. Trust what the Father says about a relationship with Him. See, the Father, God the Father, brought victory over the enemy in this story and in every single story where there is victory, God is clearly the source of the victory. It says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. From that point forward, we know that victory over the enemy is certain because God is involved. Spoiler alert, right? God wins. God always wins. Old Testament, New Testament, big bad guy, little guy, God wins. And so if God is in it, Jephthah knows that he is going to win. In fact, it says after the fact, the Lord gave them into his hands. So what is happening here? What is happening is this. As Jephthah goes into battle, he makes a vow that is stupid, that is unnecessary, and is horrible. God did not ask him to make this vow. Listen to it again. This is verses 30 and 32. Says Jephthah, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of, from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. This is the devastating effects of his true enemy, sin. Jephthah returns home, and the first thing that comes out of his door is his daughter. He has made a vow. And I want to point out, there are many uh, scholars who study the word who have tried here to minimize Jephthah's sin or to kind of put a positive spin on this passage and reduce what we see plainly in the text by saying Jephthah only intended to carry out an animal sacrifice. Never intended it to be his daughter, never intended it to be any person. His plan all along was to sacrifice an animal, which is a very normal thing to do. First of all, that's not what the text says. But if we dig a little deeper, because I think this is an important objection to rule out, uh, Israel did not keep animals in the house. If you're Jewish, Fido is not living in the house. Okay? No animals in the house. So there's no way that an animal would have been coming out of the house. But secondly, Jephthah uses a noun in Hebrew that means people. It doesn't mean animals. It means exactly what he said. Uh, if Jephthah had meant animal, he certainly would not have felt compelled to carry out this vow 
to literally sacrifice in a fire his child. Some suggest that Jephthah's vow was only to forbid her to get married. Again, that's not what the text says. And she would not have gone for two months to mourn that. She is mourning because her life is over, and she understands that to be the reality. What is happening here? He made a vow, a commitment to God to make a human sacrifice. He was not expecting his daughter to walk through the door, but he was expecting a person, whether that be one of his soldiers, whether that be a servant, whether that be another one of the, quote, worthless fellows that was hanging around him, he knew what he was doing. If I can digress for just a second, it is important to see here that God alone instructs our worship. God alone. Part of his mistake here is that he has stopped listening to God on how to worship and interact with him and how to have relationship with him, and he is listening instead to his culture. Because who is it that throws kids into the fire? It is the enemy culture that they have listened to, that they have drawn in and followed that same idolatry. The Ammonites that he is fighting are the ones who taught him this horrible, heinous sin. Their worship involved consistently sacrificing children in a fire. It was done in a valley outside of Jerusalem that came to be known in that time as hell. It was the word that they used to describe it. God is in no way in this abomination of an act of supposed worship. Let me show you that. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, we pass over. Oh, it's Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, that means throwing them in the fire to worship this false god, shall surely be put to death. If you do that, you are gone. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. So what's happening here is Jephthah has mixed his faith in God, the one true God, with all of the garbage of his culture. Uh, J.D. Greer describes this as hot dog faith. Hot dog faith. If you get a package of hot dogs, it will claim that the contents of that hot dog is some sort of a meat, turkey, turkey in the hot dog. But if you research a little further, you will see that it is, in fact, not turkey in the hot dog, right? You've all been here? Any hot dog lovers? About, about to ruin the hot dog for him. In the hot dog is not turkey, but turkey paste, which is a combination of yummy things like bone, tissue, meat, Earmuffs. Then they add in corn syrup, sodium nitrate, my personal favorite, maltodextrin. Mm. And what you get is not the real thing. I'm not going to say it's bad. You don't get the real thing anymore. This is hot dog faith. You have mixed in a bunch of other stuff with what was originally what God had intended it to be. And what you get here in reality in this passage is something that is massively spiritually toxic. It is killing 
literally, spiritually, figuratively killing these people. But maybe the worst way that this is taking place, where he's mixing what false religions are telling him with what the God of the Bible has told him, is that he tries to earn God's grace. Do you see the language that Jephthah employs as he tries to do relationship with God? He's trying to earn God's grace. He literally keeps saying, if you do this, God, then I will do this. And we can have an exchange. See, this is how you please pagan gods. If you want something from God, you pay for it and you earn it. But that is not the God of the Bible. When we're honest about the seriousness of our sin, that is the moment when we can truly see the extravagance of God's forgiveness and of God's grace, and that God has relationship ordained with his people on the foundation of his grace. There is not a buy and sell interchange happening here where I can somehow earn or manipulate or get out of God anything. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works of any kind so that no one may boast. Jephthah didn't understand, but what we are reminded in this passage is to trust the Father on how to experience relationship with Him. Number four, trust what the Father says about the value, the value of human life. Trust what the Father says about the value of human life. We see this maybe most clearly in verse 34. Again, it says, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with the tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. The word of God here begins by making it abundantly clear that she is valuable. It says over and over again, she is his only child. She is important. And she demonstrates who she is by rejoicing with tambourine and dancing when he shows up having returned from battle. But Jephthah believed the sinful lie that his culture told him that life was cheap. He stopped listening to the word and he began listening to his culture. And Jephthah's selfishness led him to sacrifice his daughter to chase his idols. What he wanted most of all was victory, and he thought this was the way to get it. And we can easily be disgusted by Jephthah's sin, right? How on earth could you do this? But we've got to not lose sight of the cruelty of our own sin. Where do I, in, in little and in big ways, where do I slip into this same place. Again, I mentioned two things that are happening this weekend. Uh, I want to tell you a, a story. In, in 2012, I went and I visited Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Memphis, uh, within our country, is one of those cities that is known um, far and away for um, black and white disunity, for oppression over the years in the past, maybe even in the present, towards the black community. And so I go to this church to visit, and during that visit, one of the first things that they did is they showed me a picture, black and white picture. I don't know if it was from the 50s or 60s era. They showed me this picture, and they said, this is a picture of all the elders of Second Presbyterian Church of Memphis holding arm in arm 
not in prayer, but to bar anybody who was black from entering the church. And they have this picture, this moment. So that means at the time they were taking this picture, they were happy about it, I assume. And they show me this picture, obviously not to show off, but to say, this is how broken our church has been. This is the level of mistake that we have made and the damage that we help contribute to in our city and in our community. But they went on to describe with joy the fact that in later years, they as a church came to recognize their sin, came to recognize that they had dispensed with the word of God. They didn't need their culture to right the ship. They needed the word of God, and they forgot passages like Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that says every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be standing around Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and worshiping him, not just certain ones. And so what God did there was move in their hearts, and they began to repent. And they apologized to their city, to their community. And they began to draw people in. And that church today is a church that serves a variety of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But they had to recognize their sin through the word of God, repent of it, and turn back to the Lord. Maybe you guys have seen this story Uh, It's made somewhat national headlines. An actress named Michelle Williams. Michelle Williams, about three weeks ago, was on stage at the Golden Globe Awards um, receiving some sort of an award that day. And she was in her speech, you can go back and look it up, praising herself for having made the choice to abort her child in order to put herself and her acting career ahead of the life of her child. Praising herself that she had the, the strength to make this choice. Do you know that since 1973 in the United States, we have sacrificed 75 million children? On the altar of idolatry. And we don't necessarily want to talk about it, but abortion is still murder. But if that's If that's all that we say, if we just end the conversation with abortion is murder, we come dangerously close to only offering that person that we're talking to a chance at moral improvement, right? There's got to be more than just pointing out the sin. There's got to be an opportunity to repent. There's got to be the right way. There's got to be God's way. There's got to be God's worth and God's, uh, God's grace and God's truth, See, God shows us in Judges that broken people have a faithful God. And what I would much rather celebrate than Michelle Williams is the countless number of women and men who have faced the difficult circumstance or the question of a crisis pregnancy and have said, I am going to make the decision to have this child. And that there are children walking around today because those parents said, yes, we may be in some sort of a difficult situation or this was a surprise or whatever the situation might be, but they said, we know this is the right choice to have this child. I guarantee you they will tell you it's the best decision that we ever made. I guarantee you that child will tell you it's the best decision they ever made. You know, in our own county, we have a very close ministry partner in Pregnancy Resources. Uh, Many of you have heard of it. Maybe some of you have not. Um, Many parents, many moms, dads are scared 
Uh, and they don't know what to do, especially if it's a crisis pregnancy situation. And what Pregnancy Resources does is meet women and men in that situation to help them walk through what is obviously a difficult question and help them make sure that they understand all the options. That abortion, despite what the culture says, is not the only option. It is not an option, period. But that parenting is a very real, very wonderful option, and adoption is a very real and a very wonderful option. Pregnancy Resources also offers client advocacy. They will listen to your story. They offer free ultrasounds, education, childbirthing classes, parenting classes, STD testing, post-abortion counseling. They want to walk with you wherever you might be in that situation. It has been one of my deepest joys over the last five years. I get to teach the last class in the parenting series, and I get to share with them the good news of the gospel, that there is a loving father who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, who sent his only son to save us, and that that is the foundation and the joy behind any sort of parenting. It is a powerful, life-changing opportunity. You know, Pregnancy Resources started in 1984, and there are now 8,000 moms that made the decision to keep their child. There are 8,000 plus children. It would fill the Vieira Baseball Stadium to overflowing just in this county since 1984. Kids who are now my age who are walking around this community. God is so good. But we are reminded clearly to listen to what the Father says and not what the culture says about the value of human life. Number five, and finally, trust what the Father says about grace. Trust what the Father says about grace. And this very clearly connects not only in the passage, but where we are in this discussion, because what we've got to bring to bear in this conversation is God's grace. Some of us know we understand God's grace, uh, but the burden of guilt that we feel makes us feel like this is an unforgivable sin that I've committed. This is something that goes too far. What I've done, God could not possibly forgive. Why do you think Jephthah kept his vow? Why would Jephthah, in the situation that we see, it's his daughter, why would he keep this vow? Remember, God never asked for or confirmed a vow or a sacrifice. God never asked for any of it. He kept the vow for the same reason that he made the vow in the first place. Jephthah doesn't get God's grace. He doesn't understand God's grace. Listen to verse 35 and 36 in Judges 11. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord. You stop right there. When you begin any conversation with what God's grace involves and your foundation of understanding is I open my mouth, here's what I have to say, you're already on the wrong road. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, his daughter, who also doesn't get it, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. He believes that he has to earn God's favor. He believes that because his culture has taught him a religion of works. Every religion outside of Christianity is, in the end, a religion of works. I must do this in order to earn from God anything back. And that is not the God of the Bible. 
they both believe that they are paying God back equally, fairly, for services rendered. What should he have said? Here's what Jephthah could have said and could have done. He could have said, I reject this disgusting vow, and I repent of trying to buy your grace and think that I could earn your love. I trust the grace of God for salvation instead. That's what he could have done. That's what every single one of us today can do. We have the same opportunity. Because how many of us have made our own vows to God? God, I promise, I swear, I'll never do that thing again. And then you do the thing again. I promise, God, I won't make the same mistake. If you will do this for me, I promise I will do this for you. But God doesn't make deals. And he doesn't deal with people on the basis of their success because none of us would have a relationship with God if it was based on my success, if it was based on your success. Jephthah had the same opportunity to dispense with a work-based religion and to come to God in grace and forgiveness. Listen to Titus. Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The gospel is 100% God's effort on my behalf and 0% my good works, my deals, my promises, or my sacrifices. Amen? Though your sins are red like scarlet, I will make you as white as snow, says the Old Testament. God the Father says to his children, there is no sin that could separate you from me, even if the hurt or the guilt that you feel is because you passed on the opportunity to be a father or a mother in abortion. Whatever sin you may have committed, God says, in Christ, you are my child, and I love you. And if you are not in Christ this morning, God desires to be your father, to adopt you into an eternal family through no effort on your part, simply by faith, receiving the gift that has been offered. See, we have a much better Savior than Jephthah, don't we? Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's a perfect Savior without sin, even though he was tempted in every possible way, says Matthew chapter 4. Jephthah forced his daughter to pay the penalty for his sins. But Jephthah's daughter could not last under the weight of this man's sins. She died because of her father's sinful idolatry. Jesus came willingly on mission sent by God the Father. He gave himself up to save you. The only one who could bear the weight of my sin, of our sin, of the sins of the world, the only one that could do it. He did it on the cross. The sin of the world on the cross, he is punished for sins he never committed. God's justice, God's rightful justice was poured out not on me who deserved it, but in the most amazingly unjust moment of all time on Jesus himself so that I could be free from an eternity in hell and spend eternity in heaven with God the Father. He didn't just end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. 
He conquered death and made a way for us to spend eternity with him. The day is now. The opportunity is now to say, Lord, whatever my sins are, I am Jephthah too. Forgive me. Let's go to that wonderful, loving Heavenly Father now. God, Lord, we are in awe of your mercy and your grace that you don't do for us what we deserve and that you do for us what we don't deserve. Father, there is no sin, no mistake that we could commit, even if our culture told us to do it, that you cannot forgive. Lord, the issue is not your strength to forgive. The issue is our hard-heartedness and unwillingness to come to you. Father, forgive us where we have believed the lies of our culture that say that there is any way to salvation other than Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the lies that we believe that tell us that things that are sin are not. Forgive us where we have undervalued in any way, Lord, human life. Father, forgive me, forgive us just for the ways that we have ignored you and your goodness and your guidance in our lives this week. Lord, we know that we can come and that we can ask and be fully pardoned because Jesus has fully died and fully risen from the dead. He was fully God and still is. He was fully man and still is. And God, we thank you for that kind of grace, a self-sacrificial grace, not one that would kill someone else for a mistake, but one that would say, I lay down my life to save you. God, we thank you for that kind of grace. We are so desperately in need of it. We call upon you to continue to pour out your grace upon us. This church, Father, we are broken. This people, Father, we are broken. But Lord, we don't simply walk around with that reality. We walk around with the reality that our identity is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Our eternity is with Christ. Our life is in Christ. And so we praise you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.